U.S. Constitution talks about the census, right? And so Thomas Jefferson was the first director of the census. And so this concept of, of providing data back to everyone is enshrined in our Constitution. Welcome, everyone, to the Data Masters podcast. I'm your host, Nate Nelson. I'm sitting down with Mark Marinelli. He's the head of product at Tamer. He's going to introduce for us the subject and the guest of today's show. Hey, everyone. If you've ever used GPS to navigate or the weather app on your phone to see if it was going to rain today, you've been using federal government data. The United States government has made a lot of their data publicly available in an attempt to spur private sector innovation like we've seen in the aforementioned examples. Today's guest is Nick Sinai, and his job for a while in the Obama administration was to make increasingly more of these data sets available to the public in hope to spur some more innovation in the private sector. He served as the Deputy Chief Technology Officer for the White House and led the Obama administration's Open Data Initiative. Um, this was a, a very large-scale project deliberately purposed to get more public data into the hands of the private sector and work with private sector companies to leverage those data for a lot of uh, mutual benefit. So today, he's going to talk about the technical challenges that the individual government agencies faced as they cataloged and listed all of these data sets, um, and how storytelling helped him create a culture where government employees were better understanding the value that these data could drive and better working with the private sector um, to drive even more beneficial outcome outside of their traditional uses of the data. All right, let's get to my interview with Nick Sinai. Nick, if you could start off by just briefly introducing yourself. Yes, my name is Nick Sinai, a senior advisor at Insight Partners, a large venture capital and private equity firm in New York. I'm also adjunct faculty at Harvard Kennedy School. I teach a tech and innovation class, a field class there. And uh, I was the U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer um, in the Obama administration. So let's get started today with the state of things before you entered the Obama administration. Um, what kinds of government data were openly available back then? And what are some of the ways that they were used in the private sector? Yeah, so the the, the federal government has a long history of, of making data open and available. And in fact, uh, the U.S. Constitution um, uh, talks about uh, the census, right? And so Thomas Jefferson was the first director of the census. And so this concept of of providing data uh, back to everyone uh, is enshrined in our constitution. Uh, I'd say more recently, you have kind of these canonical examples of uh, GPS, Global Positioning System, which was originally a Air Force system designed for precision targeting of weapons. Uh, that was opened up by uh, initially Reagan and then Clinton. Um, and so you, now you have a whole variety of, of applications and, and, and services and devices um, that use GPS. I mean, it's in your phone these days. Another uh, kind of canonical example would be weather data. Um, so the National Weather Service is part of uh, NOAA, the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, uh, has been making weather data available for, for decades to help prevent um, or to help um uh, folks avoid uh, um, hurricanes, but also to to uh, uh, private sector weather forecasting companies. And so, when you see uh, a weather forecast on on the the news, 
you see a weather forecast uh, on your app. That's actually using weather data that your federal government, NOAA, has has collected and uh, made available to the private sector. So you entered the executive branch and oversaw the Open Data Initiative. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, what was this initiative? So the Open Data Initiative uh, was really a recognition that uh, the federal government can and should do more um, around making data open and machine readable uh, for the benefit of everyone, right? And so whether that's weather data, demographics, health, education, agriculture, government collects a, a wide variety of information um, that can be used by private companies, by the public, by students, researchers, journalists, uh, you name it. And so the whole point of the open data initiatives was to take uh, really to, to build on the progress uh, in past administrations and, and uh, update, update this for a, a modern information age. And so what we did was um, uh, worked with a series of agencies to make that data more open, more machine readable, uh, of course, subject to privacy and national sec security constraints. Um, and so there's a, a variety of, of different plays that we ran from, from the White House, but the, the, the biggest one was to get going, right? So how do you uh, um, convince people to uh, make their data more available to the world and convince them that there are outside consumers uh, for that data? And so one of the things that we did was uh, started these, these uh, little events that we called data jams. And this was with my boss at the time, uh, U.S. Chief Technology Officer Todd Park. And so we do these data jams where we would bring some subject matter experts, some entrepreneurs, some product managers, designers, uh, and some, some, some government officials together and put a, a, a subject, uh, um, some data on the table and just see what they could brainstorm in the course of the day. And we'd have them vote on some of the most promising ideas. And it could be a, an app. It could be a data visualization. It could be a product extension. It could be a, a, an API, a little thing. But then taking that and, and getting them excited about that, those ideas coming to life and a handful of those would actually turn into real things. And so um, we would do our best to celebrate those those ideas in, in a larger event. We used to call these data paloozas. And so it sounds silly, these data jams and these data paloozas. But what they really did was uh, um, celebrate the opening up of the use of federal data in, in private sector innovation. And it, it showed the data stewards inside of federal government just how powerful uh, and useful that data was outside of their, their usual stakeholder group. You said at the beginning of your answer that the Open Data Initiative started because the government could do more. What was your personal motivation for doing this? Why did you and your team feel that doing this was worthwhile? Well, we, we saw, um, I'd say there's really two motivations, right? So there's uh, on the one hand, you'd see these entrepreneurs who were building great businesses, uh, and you felt that, that we could unleash more of them and the, the job creation and the, the innovation that they were, they were bringing uh, was important for the economy. And, and uh, you know, I have a past career. Uh, at, I had a past career at the time as a venture capitalist. So I was familiar with, with entrepreneurs and, and all of the innovation that they could bring. And in many cases, they were doing things that were beyond the scope um, of government, right? And so they would they would uh, do things that were outside of the the mandate that a government program should be doing. The other thing that motivated us was around transparency, accountability, and good government. 
uh, um, it's important that uh, government be responsive to the needs of of the residents and taxpayers and citizens. Um, and it's also important that, that, that government be transparent about uh, how it's operating and, and whether it's living up to its obligations. Um, and so both the uh, desire to promote additional uh, innovation um, was, was something that I, I felt very strongly about, uh, but I really came to appreciate uh, having served in government for almost six years, the importance of, of transparency. You mentioned it briefly there. Um, I'm wondering how your experience in the private sector uh, informed your ideas and your actions once you got to government. Well, I had the the, the privilege of, of working with a number of entrepreneurs uh, before I got into into government, and you could see the the relentless drive that entrepreneurs have. You could see the speed at which they would uh, continue to iterate and 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 grow, uh, and so that that really. Uh, informed some of some of our thinking, which was, uh, you know, we're going to provide some of the fuel to their fire, but they're going to go on and do some fantastic things. And so let me let me give you a, a specific example, one that we talked a lot about. Uh, David Freeberg um, founded this company called Weatherbill, and he he was, uh, as the story goes, he was driving by uh, a bicycle hut in San Francisco, and he and it was raining, and he wondered why, um, you know. Could could that bicycle hut uh, entrepreneur uh, insure against the weather? And so he started Weatherbill, and the idea of the company was to insure uh, against weather events. And he went and got a lot of of data from the federal government. And so he got um, the uh, farmers' data from from USDA. I think there's there's uh, something like twenty six million. Uh, fields in the U.S. and he went and got all of that. Got all kinds of soil data from from Interior. Of course, he got all this weather data from from NOAA. Uh, and the company that he started, Weatherbill, initially to insure uh, uh, against weather events, you know, they sell the sporting uh, leagues and those kinds of things. They pivoted to become a company that sold crop insurance and and crop management applications to farmers. So they renamed the company Climate Corp. Uh, they grew the company uh, and actually ended up selling for over a billion dollars. It was a classic venture-backed company that created a number of jobs in the Midwest and and in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, wealth creation as well. Um, and it's an example of using data from from NOAA, uh, from from USDA, from Interior to help farmers, uh, you know, manage risk. Uh, against uh, uh, weather and, and kind of have higher yields and, and so forth. And so it's a really great story that inspired us. Um, uh, it's something that uh, Michael Lewis in his his book, The Fifth Risk, uh, spent some time jumping into as well. Uh, and, it, and it's it's that kind of, of of thing that we wanted to make easier because we knew that 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 entrepreneurs like David Freeberg had a real tough time getting data from these different agencies. And oftentimes they'd have to get in person and get it on tape and get it on disk. And it should just be available in the cloud via API, uh, data set. It should be a lot, especially if there's no personally identifiable information um, and nothing security uh, related, right? National security related. Uh, if it's something like weather data or soil composition data or something like that, we should make that uh, available to the world and let the entrepreneurs uh, like the David Freebergs of the world uh, go out and create these companies that can help farmers and, and grow jobs in America. 
So, Nick, you've got all this data. Uh, I imagine it didn't arrive at your desk neatly on a silver platter. Um, what were the challenges that you faced in preparing it all? So, cleaning it up, eliminating redundancies, and so on. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's easy to tell the story uh, of opening up data. It's it, it, it's it's somewhat easy to to get people to engage with you and and try these the, these kinds of things. But how do you get organized? Right, uh, that's a real a real challenge. Uh, and you have to remember that most of the data doesn't live inside of the White House or the executive office of the president. It lives in these uh, cabinet departments and inside the, the agencies that make up those departments, right? And so how how do you get them to be more organized? And how do you get them to start this process uh, of, of cleaning up, deduping, all those kinds of things? And and so uh, for us, it was clear that that uh, developing uh, a standard taxonomy, a data schema, and 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 having some some rules of the road around a catalog uh, um, were important. Um, and so all of that ultimately led to the the um, reboot of data.gov. And so just as context, data.gov was uh, started in two thousand nine. The very beginning of the Obama administration, with a handful of data sets, I think two from each agency, and it had grown. Um, I think now, by the time that I got involved, was around 2011 and 2012. It had it had grown considerably, and there was a need to uh, um, make sure that we were standardizing uh, what was on that catalog. And so, using an open uh, standard around a data schema was super important, but also a set of rules around. Uh, how agencies were supposed to get organized in terms of creating their own catalogs. And one of the things that were, was really important to us was while we needed to uh, um, essentially harvest and create a, a master catalog at data.gov, we recognized that there was a lot of um, differences between a scientific agency, between uh, um uh, you know, a service delivery agency, statistical agencies, like agencies just do very different things and how they think about uh, securing their, their data, how they think about making it available to the public, how they think about these functions were very different. And so this all culminated in uh, an executive order in 2013, the open data executive order, which said that data uh, should be open and machine readable as a default. So if you're starting a new program or a new um, uh, system or something like that, that uh, openness and machine readability should be kind of first order principles, as long as there aren't privacy or national security or business confidentiality uh, type of, of, of concerns. But it also asks agencies to think about openness and machine readability throughout the life cycle of data. And I think that's another thing is so often when we're talking about making data available, we're, we're Talking essentially about data dissemination, right at this at this end point, but it's important to go upstream and think about how can we make uh, um, uh, data uh, more clean when we're when we're ingesting it, right? So when we're asking human beings for that data, when we're starting to transform it, uh, all those kinds of things, and not just at, at this point of dissemination. Mark, I know you have a ton of experience in organizing and cataloging big data sets. Cataloging is massively useful, but also typically massively challenging. Most people think about the challenge of applying a common taxonomy or labeling scheme to the various data sources to categorize them for use. Um, but upstream, there's this huge challenge of even knowing who to include in the cataloging process, and more importantly, knowing what data 
maybe sitting under their desk that they can include in the catalog. Uh, incomplete data are just another form of inaccurate data. So it's essential to understand who knows the most about data source X and what other sources they're using alongside data source X. Um, I think that's an area where the data culture is so important to get right. If people are proactively contributing to the corpus of data and maybe you know surrendering some control over their data, but knowing that they're contributing to the, the greater good um, and they're no longer keeping these data below the radar, then the true breadth and depth of available data can be cataloged and thus leveraged. Um, and, and technology can help here as well. This is an area where automated discovery of consuming applications, of uh, analysis of usage patterns for the core data sources, these can all be really helpful to complement the traditional core manual process of cataloging the data. Could you give a sense for the scale of the data that we're talking about here and how many different departments and channels they're all coming from? Yeah, well, the scale of the federal government is is massive, um, and so you know there are there are hundreds of uh, federal agencies. There's there's a couple dozen kind of cabinet level departments. Um, uh, you know, but by one one way to look at it is on data.gov. There's a couple hundred thousand data sets, but you know any one data set could be massive or it could be a collection of many years, uh, right? That goes on. Um, and as I said before, this could cover administrative data, scientific data, statistical data, service delivery, you know, IT and, and log and machine data is exploding, as, as I'm sure you guys can appreciate, financial data uh, and grants and, and contracting data. Uh, one concrete example I'll give you is uh, back to the National o uh, Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, they were collecting uh, 20 terabytes a day of, of um, weather data from sensors they have from ocean buoys, from uh, ground sensors, from satellites. But they, they really were only making a terabyte or two available to the, to the public and weren't really making use of, of the, the other 18 or 19 terabytes a day. Um, and that may be fine because the, the, the mission of NOAA, but uh, that data could also be useful in terms of climate modeling in terms of, of other kind of weather or farming applications, right, that are outside the remit of NOAA. And so that's just one small example of, I mean, 20 terabytes a day is not small data by any stretch, uh, but it's, it's one example of, of um, the scope that we're talking about here. So the government is a big place. We all know that. And I imagine, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's some bureaucracy involved in any major initiative. How do you possibly begin to change the culture around dealing with data? So not just the data itself, uh, but how people around you look at it and approach it at a place so entrenched in certain ways of thinking? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I, I'd say there's, there's a couple things. One is you, you want to tell a story of what you're trying to do. Um, and so we, we, we would tell the story of David Freeberg or there's this other entrepreneur from Denver who created a, 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 a medical app to help people with their symptoms. Um, and so that they would, they would go to the ER urgent care uh, if they had, had emergency symptoms. And so those stories of, of those entrepreneurs were ones we told over and over again until we were blue in the face uh, because you really have to connect the, uh, the data organization and the, the, the data initiative 
to the mission. Uh, in our case, it was it was government, but you can imagine this would be true in, in a business as well. Is how do you how do you um, connect those two? And so, so I think storytelling is an important piece of people want to know the why you are are so focused on this particular uh, data initiative. Um, so that that would be one thing. I think you have to you have to make it easy for them to collaborate. So how do you how do you bring them together? And this is true in any large bureaucracy or organization is there's a, there's a whole series of silos. So how do you uh, connect people and get them to come together? And one of the things we did, which is, it sounds silly and, and maybe it's outdated, but we created a listserv across government and anyone with a .gov or a .mil email address could join. And so I think we had something like a thousand people uh, on this listserv and we would do uh, conference calls every Tuesday and anyone could, could join. And so through the course of this, there was a lot of uh, back and forth that people would ask questions, but we also would learn about these great data initiatives and transformations and, and folks who are open, opening up data uh, and changing policy because a big piece of this was, well, changing uh, some of the policies about how they buy data and how they make data available inside the agency as well as publicly. And a lot of times that would happen asymmetrically, right? It, it's, it wouldn't necessarily be because of the executive order or some of the OMB guidance, but it would be because they had gotten a good idea, were inspired by some of this, and then took that and went uh, to their uh, data leadership, uh, to their CIO, to their senior administrator, and figured out a way to incorporate that. So those are two things that I think are, are, are helpful is, is getting people to, to talk together and, and, and telling the story. And what are you up to these days? Uh, so I'm still working with Insight Partners, uh, hel helping a, a number of Insight portfolio companies. Uh, a number of them are helping the public sector, and so I'm proud to work in that particular mission. Uh, and you can imagine in today's uh, COVID environment, uh, a number of the companies are offering uh, pro bono uh, product and, and support. Uh, to help the federal, state, and local government. So I'm very proud to be uh, helping a number of companies with that. What did you learn from your work in the executive branch with the Open Data Initiative that you now apply to your work in the private sector? <laughs> I think there's there's a number of things around um, my own transparency. So uh, I, I had the great fortune in the White House of being able to uh, blog about the work that we were doing. And sometimes I authored it. Sometimes uh, I, I would help, help someone else write it or uh, um, I would uh, amplify someone else's writing. But I think it's important to be transparent about uh, what's happening, even if it's not as sexy of a, of a thing. And, and trust me, open data and open government is not really a, a sexy topic per se. Uh, but to the extent that we could be transparent, it meant that the entire bureaucracy understood what we were doing and understood why we were doing it. Uh, and so I try and be transparent in my work as I work with Insight portfolio companies and other great companies uh, that I'm proud to, to advise, um, you know, trying to be transparent with them and with the entire set of stakeholders, including uh, federal, state, and local government, about all of the great things that these, these companies are doing and why it's so important and, and how it can help uh, support uh, the important mission that everyone is, is undertaking. What advice would you give to other CDOs, CIOs in positions like you were in who are trying to do big things with data, really leverage it for the power within and change the culture around data at their organizations? Yeah, I have, I have three things. So one would be 
uh, start small and time bound. Um, I don't know why uh, we insist on you know MVPs and lean processes with agile software, but we allow the data inventorying and the data cataloging processes to take a long time and kind of uh, not not learn from them. So I would say let's take that same iterativeness uh, with with, with uh, data organization initiatives. Uh, two would be let's use the best of humans and machines. And we did this in, in the federal government uh, as we thought about harvesting data catalogs from the agencies up to the data.gov level. So we used automation wherever we could. Um, and yet we knew that finding and encouraging the data stewards, the human beings who, who knew the data the best was, was absolutely critical. Uh, and we had to work with them to understand the sensitivities around and the context around that data to make sure that uh, we were we were telling the story of that data and getting it uh, accessible in a responsible way. Um, so number two would be use the best of humans and machines. And three, back to my my earlier point is tell the story, right? Tell the story of of what you're doing and 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 why you're doing it. Um, I think it it can become contagious because people want to have their thing plug in and be lifted up as part of this this initiative. Uh, especially if it gets a executive um, visibility. And in our case, you know, we had uh, President Obama talking about the power of open data to, to spur private sector innovation. And, and that's contagious. I'd make a point here on machine learning as a specific mechanism for automation. Automation is not just about accelerating the initial functionality, but also the long tail of any data initiative. So if you assume that even a sophisticated rule set was able to accomplish the original goal of unifying or cleansing your data, the data and the requirements thereof are going to keep changing. And you're going to end up in a losing game of catch up as you try to retrofit those rules or add new ones to accommodate the ongoing you know, variety and, and volatility of the data going forward. And this ongoing automation is perfect application for machine learning. Um, models are more resilient than rule sets in the face of change. They incorporate a broader array of inputs implicitly without having to add more logic. Um, and they have a higher tolerance for deviations from discrete conditions in the data that may pass or fail a rule, but will not wholly perturb a model's ability to, to figure out the answer. Uh, models can also proactively communicate when their confidence in the results is degrading and oftentimes why. So that's really helpful to get that, that alarm from the monitor that you need to go do something. Um, and when you have to go do something, they can be corrected with really low touch updates. So a little bit of feedback from the end users of these data to give a little more training to the model, refresh of the model, and uh, you're in better shape. So to next point, this is making the best of humans and machines, but there's a strong skew in the automation cycle toward offloading a lot of this ongoing maintenance to the machines. You're actually a bit ahead of me. Uh, I also took note of Nick's bringing up machine learning because it stood out from the rest of the subject matter in our interview. It's why my last question to him was about that point, in particular, how to meld machine learning with the culture around IT. Uh, let's listen in, and then you and I, Mark, will hop back on for some final thoughts at the tail end. Before we go, could you give a word or two on the value of machine learning in IT and how we can convince IT folks of its usefulness to their industry? 
Yeah, I, I think there's, uh, from my experience in government, my experience working alongside government um, since, uh, you see a lot of excitement uh, around machine learning, but there's always this question of, of uh, how to get started and, 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 and how, to, how to do it to, to work uh, smarter. Um, and and in, in my experience, uh, people want to go home and be with their kids they want to get the analysis done. They want to be heroes. They want the mission to happen faster and better. And so there's there's uh, sometimes there's this misconception that well people are defending their 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 turf uh, because they like doing things the hard way. And and in all my experiences in and around government, that's that's really not true. Uh, folks have uh, a protectiveness around their process and around their data uh, for reasons uh, that. Um, are statutory, the legislative, uh, around policy. There's a whole series of reasons why people are protective, but but ultimately they want to get get things done faster and better. And so I've seen a lot of um, interest in how can we apply machine learning and other automation techniques uh, to clean up data, to make it more more available, uh, to automate some of these processes that are, are are now required to make it available to the general public. So, Mark, you just heard uh, Nick and I there. Uh, what are your thoughts coming out of this? A couple of thoughts spring to mind. Um, the first is the challenge that, that everybody faces of getting data outside of the silos that it's buried in. Um, we're all very well familiar with that. But how acutely that is felt in the federal government, where you have different agencies, each of which has different data governance policies, um, each of which has different applications of the data, each of which has different ways of generating the data. If we think that getting the marketing department and the IT department to share a single view of our customer is hard, um, getting multiple federal agencies to collaborate on just about anything, um, I, I think, is uh, is categorically different. So it's, it's really interesting to hear how Nick was able to surmount that broad organizational challenge. Um, the other point is on a data culture, which uh, we've covered in, in a couple of different episodes here. It's so important to have everybody internalizing that data has value and thinking about ways to drive value. And when I think about data culture and uh, exemplars thereof, federal government does, does not spring to mind. Um, so it's interesting, again, to hear how Nick was able to start imbuing these federal government agencies with a bit more of that data culture, seeing how they were exposed to private sector organizations that may be more mature in their thinking and how together they can collaboratively make each other better um, and, and lay the groundwork for even more productive use of these data as they income become increasingly available. All right. That sounds like a good place to end. Thanks to Nick Sinai for sitting down with us. And thank you, Mark, for sitting down with me. Cheers. This has been the Data Masters podcast from Tamer. Thanks to everybody who's listening. Mm-hmm.